Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I think you're going to enjoy today's session because I'd like to go over my experience in, with working with Dr. Westman at the Duke uh, Medical Center and the patients that he sees specifically in the Lifestyle Center at Duke, seeing primarily treating uh, patients primarily for obesity. But having said that, the reason I hesitated for a second is because of the 28 or nearly 30 patients we saw yesterday, and they were all return, except for one, they were all return patients. Um, previously, I was there for first office visits, and they are different. These were follow-up, pretty straightforward, checking in with patients, taking some measurements, uh, waist-hip measurements, and some patients have been have been uh, coming back for a year and a half. Others, it's their first or second month. And so the process is important and uh, looking at some of the nitty gritty. So um, I'd like to start with that and then we can uh, reflect on both the process and the patients and uh, a lot of remarkable things came up. So in the course of seeing patients there, uh, the process is they come in, they're in a room, of course, and we come in and see them. And we... They by the time they come into the room, and then we come in afterwards, uh, they have had their uh, BIA bioimpedance uh, taken. So what the bioimpedance is, it gives a well, you do height and weight as well, so you see if there's been any weight change. But the bioimpedance will give you uh, percent fat mass versus water. So when you track this over time, as rows going across your intake, you know you also can look at your your, your BMI, and you'll see how the BMI changes, and that's calculated there for you. So you're, you have somebody else put those numbers in. The And I we used to do this a lot in our uh, practice, the BIAs. At that point, we thought it was pretty advanced measurement taking and so on. But it, the reason water versus fat mass is important is because um, you can worry less about water. So when would water percent go up? Uh, water percent would go up, and a lot has to do, it's kind of a telltale and immediate sign of carbohydrate intake. Not on the first office appointment, obviously, it's just uh, they will probably have a high percentage of water. But over time, if you see fat mass is decreasing and their water percent doesn't increase as a straight line, but periodically, episodically, it increases, it usually means that within uh, the previous week, and perhaps even two weeks, that they have had some carbs. And so think of the word carbohydrate. Brought this up in future uh, past podcasts, and it's perhaps a little simplistic, but not at all. So if you've already been on a very low ketogenic diet, and so the very low carbohydrate would be 20 grams or less, and that's what we shoot for. It's the same of a same with a classic ketogenic diet. These are total carbs, not net carbs. I never talk about net carbs. So if a patient has been doing this for weeks, months, and the holidays come through and they're with family 
And so they, whether it's cake or they have a lot more veggies for the, you know, or a lot of pizza, even though it might not have been with uh, wheat or flour crust, but a lot more veggies, a lot more carbs, you'll see their water content will go up, but their fat mass may not go up. So fat mass usually is reflective of a couple things. One is uh, total calories. So if they've had a lot more calories and you can have fat mass go up on a ketogenic diet, if you're eating a lot of calories. One of the reasons people lose weight on a ketogenic diet is because uh, their appetite, if they drop the carbs, their appetite goes down, they're no longer hungry, and they eat less than their uh, BMR, basal metabolic rate. That's the secret. So the carbs are really, it's always been about carbs. Dropping the carbs and then eating your protein, having enough protein. And usually most people don't have to go to the extent of calculating the macro of the proteins as long as they stick to the carbs, as long as they know how to count and what is 20 carbs. You know, they can read back of packages. They know how to measure it initially. They know what 20 carbs in a, a romaine um, salad would be like or iceberg, as long as they've gone through that at one point and they can recognize what 20 carbs is and they know how, how many carbs are in alcohol. And, and things like that. So once they have that all the way, then they can just focus on the carbs and eat protein for the most part when they're hungry. And as Dr. Westman would say, and I thought it was pretty interesting, is that uh, he just doesn't worry about fat. You know, the, the, even when it comes to oil on, you know, dressing in your salads and so on and so forth, he really puts down in his particular plan, you know, sparingly, use sparingly, because he wants, remember he's in obesity medicine, and he wants your fat, your body fat to be used uh, for you to be burned. You want you to be a fat burner, not just a fat consumer. So if you're eating, you're up to your BMR, basal metabolic rate in fat, you know, you know you're doing your protein and you kept your carbs low. Well, you're not going to be losing any weight. You may be in ketosis. So that's a good thing. And you may want to be therapeutically in ketosis, but you also can be in ketosis simply by letting your appetite determine when and what to eat, protein and minimum of carbs or no carbs. That's self-determining is his belief. And that reality it has to be accepted because he's been doing it this way for certainly the last 10 years. And as I've said before about Dr. Westman, he singularly has the largest number of patients probably of any place, anybody in the world that has treated patients exclusively with the classic ketogenic diet inherited by Atkins and slightly modified. So that's about it. So it's a real general, he, he, he has a, what he calls page four and sort of outlines, these are the foods you can eat. These are the serving sizes that you can eat. And, uh, then as I mentioned before, he goes and he has a class twice on the twice a day on uh, Tuesday or Thursday. And so people can come in and get this sort of general orientation, but in the very least they get a page right out of Atkins saying, this is what you can eat, you know, 20 carbs or less, make sure. And he repeats that initially for the first office visit, uh, not excessively, but he's just make sure that they've heard that. One of the really interesting things about, I guess we'd say his bedside manner is that he does not overstate things at all. He want to he'll make sure that they understand. And on the return office calls, he'll ask if they're interested in other recipes and he'll give them sites online because there's a computer in the room 
saying, here's where you can go for the recipes if you're bored. But um, you can tell that people that have decided to be in ketosis, whether it's for weight loss or for other reasons, that they usually are not bored. Now, boredom is is really, uh, and this, this again was a tip from him, when people say they're bored, it means they want sugar. And then you have to ask, well, why do they want sugar? It usually means they've been having carbs and therefore carbs have generated the appetite. So since we are still in the shadows of the holiday over the Christmas holidays and New Year's and into the beginning of the New Year's, that it's pretty reasonable that that's still uh, they're still having some carbs or whatever. So once you drop the carbs, three days your appetite drops, you're less hungry, and that's how that works. So I thought being gentle with the patients was really, really nice. It isn't saying, now remember, I told you to have 20 carbs or less. And you know, he, he does ask for, you know, what are the things you're eating as sort of a, a day in the life, give me an idea of where you are right now. So he can include those in his notes, but he gets to check in on a sense of reality. And he'll have to go back. You know, the demographic of the patients he sees is extremely wide. Age distribution, education background, uh, affluence level, education level, um, it's all over the place. So you have to have a commonality. We saw a couple that were uh, in their late 70s and early 80s, and she had a, a rare a genetic disease called Pompey's disease. And Pompey's disease is one of five genetic diseases that has to do with glycogen. So they call it a glycogen storage disease, and it's even given a number. I think that's number three or something. Another glycogen storage disease, and you can look at this online, is called uh, McArdle's disease. And so that's just another number. So all these different genetic diseases that are in the category of glycogen storage disease, it means, unlike you and me, they can't access the stored glycogen in your liver, in their liver, or in their muscles. And so they can't go out for a vigorous walk. They're, they can only go as far as the actual glucose that's in their, in their bloodstream. So the advantage of, and this is new, this is new within the last couple of years, by the way. Uh, and as Dr. Westman says, he's not the one that thought of it, but it's been, you know, people got in, talk, in, in touch with him, primarily out of the UK, that um, there's an organization called McArdles or Glucose storage disease people, and they took it upon themselves to adapt a ketogenic diet, thinking that, correctly thinking that, that they could become a fat burner, and that is have ketones high enough in their blood that that would f feed the muscles. So consequently, these people that could not go out for a vigorous walk, they call it your second wind. This group, in other words, they will, this is without the ketogenic diet, they'll go out for a walk or some sort of exercise, and they get quickly tired. It's like they have to get their second wind. And so they socially opt out of those kind of uh, events where they have to be around other people and it has to do with some sort of uh, physical activity. So don't know who started it, but now they have an organization online that's about the ketogenic diet. And they find now they go out for long hikes. And uh, it's just amazing to hear their stories. So across the board, this is what's happening. Prior to the only way that these diseases, or glycogen storage diseases, were treated was with a drug that allowed the access 
to a partial access to some of the, you know, kicking up the blood sugar. So they had more glucose, in essence, to make them diabetic, if you will. They had more glucose, they'd have more ability to have longer energy. Well, these people did a runaround and said, I don't think that's the way to do it. Very interesting, huh? So that's an application of the ketogenic diet. Really, it's interesting. So we saw this one one couple, and it's really interesting to see who picks up the ketogenic diet. And from the instructions from Dr. Westman is, you know, it's 20 grams, it's 20 grams, it's 20 grams total carbs. There's just not a lot to explain on that. He doesn't even say you have to calculate your macros or proteins. It's 20 grams. Learn how to be creative, but just have 20 grams. The more educated people, perhaps too educated, perhaps too affluent, I don't know, would make this such a problem. Well, does that mean I can have cauliflower soup? Well, because it said cauliflower on it, it's like, well, how many grams of, you know, they, they still had yet to get down to calculating what their carbs were. So they're struggling. And so they didn't see a lot of improvement. And uh, that was interesting. And yet a, a totally different example was a young man, 27, who had weighed 15 months ago, 415 pounds. At the time of this particular uh, appointment, he was down to 200, he's six feet tall. He was down to 250 pounds. He had no, uh, he was not diabetic. He, uh, I mean, he had some elevated blood sugars in his history, but he uh, was so focused. I mean, he was, I would have thought he was like a serious student or, you know, he really had this penetrating focus about him. And, uh, you know, I was basically, I listened in on the appointments. I get to ask a question or, or contact the patient or whatever. So in the end I said, so you've obviously done a lot of work. I said, how did you happen to come to this particular approach? You know, he actually was born and grown up, born and went to school in Durham and he was now working at uh, Duke University in the athletic department. I assumed, given his size and his girth and his musculature, that he must have been a you know, football coach or something like that. I said, no, he's kind of a janitor, works out the athletic events. And he uh, he said, you know, I, I just didn't know about it. I uh, Somebody pointed me in this direction. I looked into it, and here it was right in front of me, and I just never heard heard of it before. So he had, in the last six months, been to uh, Southeast Asia twice. You know, he, he knew Singapore, in parts of Indonesia, and parts of Thailand. And he's going to go back for his third time, I guess, in his next break from, from school, uh, from work at school. And what I got out of watching him and talking to him is that this, I haven't even told you the whole story yet, his his ability to break down this wall of fat for him being obese, taking care of it with almost no effort. It then led him to break down other walls. You know, he, he's no longer a local, local yokel. He's Mr. International, Mr. Cosmopolitan. And he's very eager to go back and learn other languages. It's like, Oh, it's a dramatic change by realizing that he didn't have to be that guy. So back to his story, he said he was so obese when he was young. In second grade, he was, um, he remembered being at least 200 pounds. So 200 pounds in second grade. They, they kept him, prohibited him from playing peewee football because he was too big. I don't know if he was too big and he'd hurt other kids. They landed on him, but 
He couldn't play sports because he was too big. So right now, the last time he weighed 250 pounds was in grade school. So think about that. His whole life had been defined by being a big, heavy guy. And suddenly it's like the mind and personality and the little guy, he's not a little guy at six feet, as I said, but the smaller person that was inside the bigger person really got a chance to realize himself, to actuate themselves. So it's an amazing story, I think. So if you just talk to him, you he, he's not a, he's not stuck on himself at all. He sees this. He's almost at his goal. He'll be down to 200 pounds probably in the next six months. And there he goes. You know, the, uh, which brings me up to another point in working with Dr. Westman. There's no like a goal. He doesn't put goals out there in front of people. He says, you know, you're, you just keep on and your body will eventually find out where it wants to be. So it's a comfortable place to be. I put that in sort of the the wording and the manner isms of being a good bedside manner is like, you can do this. It's 20 grams. Just need to learn these things. And then he says, if you're really jonesy, if you really want some clever recipes, he shows them online where to go this, they go to these various things. One woman was complaining they didn't want to have coconut tasting fat bombs. So he flips the computer around, goes to Google and say, all right, non-coconut fat bomb. Sure enough, there is a YouTube from somebody in Australia he said, no, there you go. So she's happy she can do that. So those little things shouldn't be obstacles. Meanwhile, you have other people that have been coming on and on and off for the last couple of years. I mean, you have all the history of all the visits they've had. So you get to see how the numbers increased, decreased, or didn't change at all. And they're still not quite sure. They're still not quite sure. And it's hard. It's hard saying, it's, you can't quite even do a conversation. You know, it's like you have to find the voice inside them to say, Hey, let's do this. There's a remarkable change just around the corner, you know, just around the corner. Let's, let's do this together. But they not quite sure if they're having too much spinach. They're not quite sure. And you know, they had their friends over and they had their son to take care of. And so all these, I'm not demeaning that at all. All these other stresses in their life, tended to kind of blur them, blur their understanding of what they were to do. And so Dr. Westman would ask, you know, do you want another copy of, of uh, you know, the outline of things to do? No, no, I got that. And, and so that was an interesting realization. And in talking with him and his approach, again, think about it, he's treated more people in the world. We can't verify in the world, but I'm, I'm pretty sure of it than anybody else with a ketogenic diet. And he's the head of, uh, obesity medicine, the organization, probably more than once the, the, the annual president. And he makes his presentations there as well. And, um, but you know, he's, he knows what it can do and what it can't do. And he's not one that, to go make claims like, well, it can save Alzheimer's. It can do this. It can do that. So well, we actually don't know about that. He said, we, there's not a lot of research on the ketogenic diet on Alzheimer's. We know some things about ketones in the brain, but to go from ketones in the brain to the ketogenic diet is going to reverse Alzheimer's. It says too much of a stretch. We just don't know that. So he's one that likes to see a number of studies, you know, one that says something and another that verifies what the first one said done by a different place and different person in a different location, preferably. So 
that's it. He stands on solid ground. So when he says, this is what can happen. And so his compliance is about 50%. So some of the conversations we would have, is like saying, so what would it take to make your compliance higher? Well, the factors are many. You know, uh, you can screen for more motivated patients. You know, these are all Medicare insurance backed. And so uh, obviously people who pay out of pocket to come in and take care of their own health, they're much more motivated. But that's not who these are. So it's a whole whole different demographic. You can screen for perhaps uh, education level. And sometimes that looks to be a variable and sometimes it doesn't. As I say, they, the couple that look like they're well-educated all, all their life, fairly affluent, they couldn't get out of their way. You know, it was like, well, technical, he's taking down notes and so on and so forth. And sometimes you can get so wanting these details that you don't see how simple it actually is. So in my mind, you know, I say, so where, where's Dr. Goldcamp and all this? Where's, where's his part on the graph? Uh, me being the naturopath and the patients that I treated, and I didn't treat any of them with a ketogenic diet because I didn't know enough then. Should have though. I've said that before, is that since I deal with patients pretty much one, you know, one-on-one in each patient, you go off in it, even in a different direction because of the conditions that would come into our office and we're not all one category of patients, that that would open you up to a lot of different ways of treating. But um, so I would probably, I would certainly be let's get the dairy. That was another thing. He's, he has no problem with dairy. He said, yeah, you know, you could take it off, take it out. Um, and he does have that recommended, but he doesn't want people to think about getting rid of dairy at the cost of not doing 20 carbs. So the reluctance of overemphasizing, well, you know, if you got rid of dairy, you'd feel really good. And all these other things would change in life that would keep people from doing the 20 carbs. And so, as I would say when I would talk to him, you know, the, the 20 carbs is the elephant in the room. If you can get people to do the biggest thing that's the biggest obstacle to cure in their life, whether it's weight or neurological disorders or before surgery or after surgery, uh, rehabilitation for whatever, that is the biggest thing you could do is to get your carbs down, period, because it's going to affect all these other factors. Yes, your ketones are going to come up and they have their whole anti-inflammatory aspect. But when we talk about the ketogenic diet, it inherently becomes, but it is not prescribed, it is not described as a calorie-restricted diet. But it becomes a self-induced calorie-restricted diet because your appetite is dropped. So at some point, so we think of obese people, and he, he generally recommends, you know, getting on a multi- Actually, you know, he just seen that in the class. He didn't remind anybody of, you know, taking, he just, you know, it's there in the paper and he feels people are going to do what they're going to do, but he wants to make sure that they're doing the 20 carbs. So these other things you can do, but back to the compliance factor in dealing with a large group of people, that they're all good things to follow. You know, you could follow genetic maybe predispositions or you could follow nutrient deficiencies, but those are pretty sophisticated things to address. Maybe way down the line afterwards, like maybe this 27 year old, but look what he did, you know, for in a year and a half, he just totally changed his life. 
and he just did the 20 carbs. You know, and now he goes on and watches everybody use, use tubes and now he's into uh, intermittent fasting and so on and improving his own life. So that's pretty interesting. So you don't know who's going to pick it up. You don't know why they're going to pick it up. So back to me sort of superimposing myself into that situation, I would say depending on the engagement of the patient, I would probably see if I could add in various other things. So when I'm in a coaching group, I kind of make it demanding. I do ask for people to to calculate their macros and start at the 20 total carbs. And I do hold their hands for that. I think once they get those things out of the way, and for four weeks, if you can be the tough guy, the tough doc saying, this is what we need to do. If we don't get there, then nothing else is going to happen. Well, then you've made it pretty intuitive. You know, they can look at a piece of meat and saying, yeah, um, I'm hungry enough to eat the whole thing. Okay, great. They're going to find out that basically their appetite really doesn't go beyond eating more protein than you know, 1.5 grams per kilograms of body weight, plus or minus that. And they're not too worried about it. And some people, that's it. They kind of get more and more simple on their diet. Others are looking for fancier and fancier diets, you know, and fat bombs and so on and so forth. So in regards to fat bombs, they're kind of a good transition for people looking for something sweet that obviously is better than, so what are the alternatives to sweet? Well, or alternatives to on a ketogenic diet, you're not going to go to sugar. Or if you do, you better count your carbs and that's not going to be a lot of sugar. It's kind of a the poor choice. And then you go to artificial sweeteners. And Dr. Weissman doesn't have any issues with artificial sweeteners. You know, he says in the big deal, just get them there. If that helps them, the artificial sweeteners helps them to stick to the 20 carbs. He's all for the artificial sweeteners. That's a good point. In terms of my hand-holding approach, I would say, let's not do the artificial sweeteners. I I put stevie at the top because that's one that works for me. doesn't work for other people. And I would go down a list of the ones that are least deleterious, least bad. And uh, we know that there's many bad ones out there. So I would make that issue with them and saying, here's where you can experiment. But I think uh, the Westman approach is quite valid. You know, I, I think that's, can you imagine the freedom you would have if somebody said, just do it. You know, who cares about the artificial sweetener? Just do it. I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm, it's not in my group that choice to make, but on the one-to-one where I don't have to sort of carry that general population, I would say, let's not do this. I'd push him as much as I could, but try to maintain the, the compliance. If I thought the compliance was going to collapse and I'd have to regress. And certainly, you know, my dairy position on that. And I think that would make a tremendous change, but I don't do that first. I want to make sure they got their 20 carbs. Just log it, log it, log it, log it, log it. And once they get there, then they'll understand we can pull something away for a period of time and then reintroduce it. Not everybody has a bad time with area when they reintroduce it. Lucky them. Most people do. So um, that was some of the, the approach differences in terms of cases that we saw. And, you know, it is tough. And, you know, if you really want to drill down and, and have a very expensive comprehensive program, we would look into nutrient deficiency, nutrient deficiencies on a per person basis and get special tests for that. We would look at genetic predispositions of certain things and make sure that those are covered. We would make sure that they would have a, call it a comprehensive multiple vitamin 
it might even be more specific than that on a nutritional basis. So those are places that we can go to plug into this. We would also certainly go to look for labs. You know, he would do labs too, but he they have a great software. Anybody, any lab these guys, the, the patient had in the last you know, 24 to five years, it would connect to it. So he could go and he has all the labs right there. And he would then say, if somebody hasn't had uh, basic lab work in five years, let's go get some basic lab work and prescribe that and off, off and away they go. But usually that's not a problem because they have access to everything. So going over those labs and making sure that they have some good labs, we would probably differ on vitamin D. I think that vitamin D is something. Do I know firsthand that it saves so many people's lives? No, I don't, but I know people felt healthier on it and I certainly tracked it long enough and realized people low in vitamin D don't have a great life. People uh, I've seen too high. People get too overeager by just one thing. It can happen with anything. It happens a lot with vitamin D. But there is something to vitamin D, you know, being in a range that's 40 to 60. I think it's nanometers per deciliter, but 40 to 60 range in terms of American U.S. Uh, units, measurement units. So in terms of measuring ketones or patients that he has, um, almost never. If he, he might do a spot check and say, hey, or, or tell a patient, go out and get some strips, you know, some urine strips, because he just wants them to cross the bridge. If he knows he gets some urine strips and gets them started into ketosis, some ketones, that he doesn't care strips versus blood versus, you know, he says there's difference, but just get it started. So I don't think anybody measures their blood uh, ketone levels. If they're already diabetic, type one or two, then they're already measuring their blood glucose levels. And that's good enough for him with the whole idea is compliance. You know, you add too many variables to a certain's, to a person's, a patient's consciousness, I would say, unless they're in a really dire situation that they're just not going to do it. You know, it's like overfilling a cup of water. That's it. They, you know, they, they'll forget the good parts of what you were trying to teach them. And that, that is interesting. So that whole little thing about compliance, how can you make things more compliance? And um, he's a very interesting physician to be around because they're, they're starting a whole combination of heel clinics to get the word out. Uh, he and Jackie Everstein, and that's pretty impressive. There, He's also invo- involved with Adapt Your Life, which is making um, certain keto foods and the point, especially in the practice, his practice, the people he's seeing is that it needs to be easier. They need to have something that's a good source of a processed food. And as much as he talk, talks about chicharrones, so now there's even chicken skin, what we call chicken skin crackles. Uh, those things are good. They end up being like the potato chip substitute for people on keto. But in the real world is that people actually do have a lot of processed foods. You know, they don't all go home with fresh veggies or meat or chicken and just go cook it and that's it. It's And so given that reality, you have to work in their reality to make it better. Fat bombs are something that are brought up, but certainly nothing that's really focused on. He sees that kind of as a transition of helping people get over the whole sweetness thing. But the, the rule for the most part is that once you drop carbs, your appetite drops a lot. Your desire for sweetness drops a lot. And, but he listens to words like I'm bored. And then he said, oh, there's somebody's having a sweet tooth. So that's the, that's the hack, if you will, of the understanding of what boredom means. 
Uh, they want something sweet, exciting, sexy. So um, I think I've covered most of what I wanted to see. Patient scenes, the process, results. So the process is kind of a bedrock process. It's certainly something you can build upon on an individual basis if you want to be much more specialized, and, and, and people do. You can tell that. However, you really may need to make sure that this is the first step that is committed to and is sustained to and is continued with. That if you do that, then you've made a big change. And if people can see the change, like that 27-year-old guy, that they're going to go on and make other changes in their life because you've just opened a door. But if you brought in too much stuff and they never got to see too much stuff being requirements that you brought in. Maybe you were such a smart guy and you talked about all these fancy things and they just left confused. So have them comply, monitor the fact that they're doing it in a friendly manner. And then after that period of time, you can build on it. And um, not everybody gets, gets, gets cracking on it at all. Some take it very seriously and uh, it's hard to know where that magic comes from. Dealing in another population in terms of cancer patients, which none of these were, you know, they come to life or they come to an appointment like this, whether it's naturopathic or an MD, with a much more higher attention span and willingness to implement more than just one thing. So that's a different patient audience. And you can bring in some of the esoteric, but still you have to be careful. Do they know what these results mean? Are these, these results germane to what their what their desires are because it's about what they want and um, you conveying the important points to them so then i think i'd like to stop there we will be interviewing dr westman he's such a busy guy listen to this he's going to well la next week um shenzhen china the chinese government actually invited him over to start education in shenzhen which is the we were there a year and a half ago as the manufacturing capital of, of China, which is about an hour north of Hong Kong. And then there's a low carb in Indonesia. And then a couple of low carbs in Seattle coming up as well. So uh, a lot of exciting things that he'll be tackling. And uh, uh, just a really, really thankful that I had the time to spend both uh, return patients and follow-up patients I will be going back and working with one of his colleagues, and uh, uh, Will Yancey. So if you ever look up Dr. Westman, you'll see Will Yancey's, they're almost on every paper together. And he works with in the Lifestyle Clinic as well, but he runs the, I forget what they call it, but where they, people come up and they live there for a couple of weeks, up to a couple of months. They stay in a hotel and they have their food and everything taken care of and they have their whole agenda. It's kind of a, lack of a better word, a, a health farm. I was about to say fat farm, but I don't know if everybody's over overweight. So they, they put them through. These are the things you can do for your life. Boom. Then they go back home. Here's hoping they take back some of those things that they learn. And the ketogenic diet is not used at all in that context. So there's, as you know, there's a lot of disparity. You know, it's, there's not one unified way of doing medicine at Duke at any uh, university, medical university, by the way. So that's not different. So with that, I'm going to close. And I thought that was uh, really important insights to share. And next week, we have a number of 
a podcast coming up. Um, Stephen Conane, I'll be interviewing and Heads Up Health and Keto Mojo and all these things. So interesting things to listen to in the future. Thanks for listening today. And again, I encourage you to keep sending me questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. And what I will do is put them into uh, a Q&A or work them into the conversation of who I'm talking to. Okay, till next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.